Thank you. Wow, difficult to follow. No pressure, is there? You know, at all. Lyndon, wow. Who said you weren't a preacher? Did you say it? Or did God say it? We're going to do our next in a series on Old Testament heroes, okay, following last week's session. I just want to talk about family, though, God's family, that we sang that song, you know, I could sing of his love forever, that his love has actually captured our hearts. It's his family that we're part of. We're together part of his family. His love has captured us. Has his love captured your heart? Because that's a really important thing here. And I tell you, his love is readily available for each and every one of us. I just want to say, Phil and Jill, uh, you know, sometimes it's important to lift a few people up. They've just moved in yesterday. Empty house on Friday, we were there helping them to clean and, and we took our picnic chairs and sat out in the back room looking out at the fantastic view they now have down near Grassington. And the furniture, lorry, whatever it is, arrived, this, arrived yesterday and they've come all the way over to be with us today, the day after they've moved in. And I tell you, who's moved into a new house? When the fir- and, and it is total chaos, isn't it? Okay, they didn't have any clothes. They had to go back to the house they were staying in to, in Skipton to get their clothes. So well organized. If you want to know about life skills, go and talk to Jill. But I just want to say thank you. Thank you for coming this morning. It's such an encouragement to me as well. We're going to talk about Old Testament heroes. Now, my big heroes when I was so high, and this is going to put me quite ancient okay, were the likes of Davy Crockett, yeah, the likes of Ivanhoe, the Knights of the Round Table, and especially Robin Hood. Now, it wasn't the age where you went and bought all the equipment and gear, we made it, okay, and we would play, and the the countryside around my house, I'm a country lad, I was born in a small market town called Market Drayton, and I lived on the outskirts of it, and it would echo to the battles of youngsters, and we had gangs in those days, but we were all playing someone, playing a hero. You can imagine me with my homemade raccoon-tailed fur hat on, can't you? You know, with my tomahawk, yes? Or my my shield we made and painted and my wooden sword that I made. All those battles that we had. Yeah, I always played the part of the winner. Never the loser. Who wants to be an Indian? You know, who wants to be in the 7th Cavalry, Custer? And and they lost, actually. But uh, I I, I remember that uh, occasionally I had to retreat temporarily usually because of cuts and scrapes and blood pouring out everywhere. Yeah, we used to play bows and arrows for serious in my day. You know, we put skewers on the end. (laughs) My neighbor walked a mile and a half home with a skewer sticking through. I mean, we were into it, you know, and we'd retreat to mum to be patched up, never crying. We were tough in our day. We never cried. Okay, but... A strong motivation for me 
in making my own personal response to the gospel message back in my first year of college, uh, 1969, okay, down in Brighton, was that I was very dissatisfied with the direction of my life. Yeah, it, 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 what it, how it was going to be, and I was looking ahead, and it was so predictable, okay, for me. Get my degree, get a good job, okay, find a wife, good wife, get married, have children, get a house, get a car, okay, get old, retire, and die. I, I tell you, I, I don't know where this feeling came from back then. I know now. But I really wanted purpose and meaning in my life. I wanted to make a difference to the world. Perhaps it was a bit that reflection of the hero worship that I had as a youngster. I wanted to make a difference. And that actually led me into relationship with Jesus. Okay. And in the Bible, I see heroes who, despite their weaknesses, their frailties and faults, God chose them. Lyndon. Okay, God's chosen you. Wow. You could be. You already are. I ought to be careful about this, shouldn't I? You already are. But what you could be with God. Hallelujah. Despite your weaknesses. I won't list them here. Okay, I don't know them actually, but yeah. Okay, chose them and used them to change the world around them. Men and women who, through their faith allied with their actions, gain God's approval. You can read about some of them in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Men and women, old and young, who God gives us as examples with whom we can identify. Seeing in them the struggles that we have. Seeing in them our own weaknesses. But who, by their example, give us hope. I hope your heroes are like that. I I choose my heroes because of their weaknesses, because in them I see hope for God using me. I see my own weaknesses, and I can see a God who can use me despite those weaknesses even. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders And the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want my hero today that I've chosen from the Old Testament to be an example that will encourage you in your adventure with God, in your walk with God, just as he has encouraged me. So I'm going to choose to speak about Gideon. I can't cover the whole of his story, but I want to talk about the very beginning of his adventure with God. And I want to highlight three things from Gideon's encounter with the angel. His first response to that encounter, his God's commission to him and Gideon's reaction to that commission. So let's look at Gideon's first response to the words of God spoken to him through the angel. 
And the angel there didn't appear with wings and a little halo glowing in a white garment. He was just an ordinary looking guy. Okay. And Gideon didn't know at first that he was an angel until the words that he was bringing began to touch his heart and he realized that here was no ordinary man, but actually God was speaking through him. Let's turn to Judges chapter 6, 11 through 13. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite. Okay, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders and that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon's Hebrew name that his parents gave him at birth meant warrior. And his father's name, by the way, Joas, means fire of God. But both were leading lives far from the meaning of their names. Joas had forsaken God and was a leading light in pagan worship in his family and his community. Gideon was hiding in a hole in the ground, a wine press press to to thresh the wheat for fear of the Midianites. And into that situation came the angel of the Lord and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you. That's when Gideon began to think, hmm, there's something special here. The Lord is with you. Just take a moment and think through that for yourself. That the Lord is saying, I am with you. I don't know all the names, whether they're prophetic or not. But the Lord says, I am with you with you. Hallelujah. So what Gideon's first response was one of questioning. His first response was one of doubts about God, even one of blaming God for the present situation in the land. Let's just put it into context. Why would he respond like this? Let's understand the backstory. It's now 1146 BC, nearly 100 years after the story of Rahab, the uh, prostitute, the Canaanite prostitute in in Jericho who sheltered the spies, the Israelite spies who were spying out the land. Remember what um, Josie talked on last week. And things that started so well with Joshua going across the River Jordan on dry land, God stopped the waters for them. And the taking of Jericho, it started really well. It had started to go badly wrong by this time. After his death, the invasion was left incomplete. The people had drifted away from God, even imitating the pagan religion of the surrounding nations. The worship of Baal and his spouse Astoreth were associated 
horrific practices, child sacrifice, temple prostitution, etc., was happening. And the people of God were right in the middle of it. They had not conquered Canaan. Canaan had conquered them. And it was in that situation that Gideon is here, questioning why this has happened. Where is the God that our ancestors told us about? Can't see him. But we need to remember that the fulfillment of the promises of God was dependent on their obedience. That privilege came with responsibility. In Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, it's, we could have selected any number of scriptures on this, but I've chosen this passage from verse 15 through 18. This is God speaking to his chosen people before they came into the land. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient and you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. So God, as he said he would, when he saw their behavior, they saw their disobedience to their ignoring his, his ways and ignoring him, he would discipline them by withdrawing his protection and blessing. And consequently, the surrounding nations would turn on them, devastating them and the land. And then eventually the people would wake up and they'd cry out to God for deliverance in repentance. And he would send a deliverer to them to restore their freedom and act as a leader or as a judge over the nation for a period of time. But this cycle happens several times. Cycle of disobedience, discipline, despair and deliverance. And it would repeat. It was a time with a few exceptions of no understanding of God. A denial of godly absolutes. Even in that denial of God himself, no godliness in people's behavior, very few morals of poor or no leadership, of the breakdown of law and order and civil institutions. A time of fear for the people, a time of poverty, a time of theft, of murder, of rape, of violence and war. A time of reaping what had been sown by the people over generations. The signs of God's presence, of his miracles and his blessings were very few. People, rather than loving God, are blaming him, not accepting any responsibility for their own behavior. It's pretty grim, isn't it, actually, when you think about it? The Bible says of this period, and it's the last verse of Judges, chapter 125, it says, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do we see something of this state in our nation today. I'm not saying it was completely as bad as that, but do we see some of the things today? 
I'm a great, I, Jane and I occasionally, besides watching the Dr. Blake series from, the, from, from Australia, which we were watching last night, <laughs> recording, we, 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 we'll watch Interceptors and, you know, uh, the emergency stuff. But the stuff that's going off that we're pretty unaware of at times, the breakdown of law and order, the behavior of families, the behavior of children, just, it's horrifying. Do we see a reflection in our times, the times of God's people back in Israel all that time ago? William Haig, I've been reading a book by um, Wilberforce. Well, it's not by Wilberforce, it's by William Haig. He was leader of the Conservatives at one stage for a little while. He's written a great book on Wilberforce, William Wilberforce. He's called it The Life of the Great Anti-Slave Campaigner. And there are some great quotes, and this is particularly one in 1797. And this is Wilberforce's observation. To the decline of religion, and I put Christianity in my words, because religion in those days was Christianity in this nation. And morality, our national difficulties must both directly and indirectly be chiefly ascribed. Breakdown of Christianity and a breakdown of morality. And he's saying the problems we're experiencing in our nation are because of those things. And he says that my only solid hopes for the well-being of my country is that she still contains many who love and obey the gospel of Christ that their intercessions may yet prevail, that for the sake of these, heaven may still look upon us with an eye of favor. He wrote that turn of the uh, 19th century. Is that right? 18th, I always get confused with that stuff. 1790s. Okay. He wrote that. And I think today, God is holding off on this nation that there is still something of his blessing and favor here because of his family here who are praying for this nation. So that's the importance that we should pray for, for God to bless, continue to bless this nation because of our intercessions. Going back to Gideon, his country had seen and experienced for seven years the Midianites and their allies, the Amalekites, repeatedly invading the land like locusts, especially at harvest time, and taking everything they wanted, and apparently this God doing nothing. It's not surprising that he was doubting God and his existence. It was interesting that Gideon didn't get an answer to the why, but God immediately came back and said to him, second point, that he gave him a particular commission, a particular task, in, in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Am I not sending you? My desire for this sick and needy city, this sick and needy nation, for this sick and needy world is that every follower of Jesus would get before God and ask him what they can personally do to bring a change, to bring a godly change, to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth. 
That's my desire. For every believer, it's quite provocative this morning, by the way, is that every believer to stop being so taken up with their own needs, their own desires, and their own ambition, to turn their eyes heavenward and outwards to find out what God would have them do and step out in obedience. My wife's given me the sign which is, come on, Rob, get on with it. Okay, that's it's a real blessing because we minister together around the world. And she's often doing this. Occasionally she'll get up and get the mic and tell me to sit down. She'll get on with it. Wilberforce, William Wilberforce, I'll put another quote up there, in 1826. He was accused of being a fanatic by a fellow member of parliament. And he said, he said this in response. If to profess humanity to our fellow creatures and to endeavor with zeal to carry into execution whatever measures lay in my power for promoting their welfare with the honorary gentleman's definition of fanaticism, I am afraid that I am, most, I am a most incorrigible fanatic. In other words, Wilberforce was sold out for the welfare, particularly of the slaves, but also of his nation for the poor. He represented Yorkshire, I think, for something like 27 years, the county of Yorkshire. And he was sold out for his constituents, for their welfare. He instituted many, many uh, societies for improving education, for uh, child laws to get child out of uh, long working hours, etc., etc. He was involved in so many things. He was an incorrigible fanatic for Jesus to help the people whose hurts were hurting God. Are you a fanatic for Jesus? What a great thing. I believe that Gideon receiving that very specific commission and walking obedience to it began a process of personal spiritual healing, of deepening his faith and reliance in an almighty God, of developing his experience of the presence of God with him and the satisfaction of making a difference in his nation. That particular commission to go and deliver the nation from Midian actually helped Gideon. God didn't answer his doubts. He just gave him a job to do. And, you know, my own experience is I do know something of my weaknesses. Discipline is a real problem for me. You know, I, I'm quite happy to take the easiest course. That's my dad. That's my, my, my wife will say, you're just like your dad. You take the easiest course. You don't argue. You go and sit down. You, you know, you, you just back off things. And I know that that's my problem, discipline. But I've found as I've got a commission from God, a particular commission, which says, Rob, I want you to do this, commit to do it, then I find that that commission deepens my reliance on God. And those issues of self-discipline are not a problem because the commission holds me. The commission uh, challenges me. The commission throws me onto God in a way that it wouldn't have done. And I think... For some of us, not necessarily for all, but for some of us, if you're like me, you need to hear God's commission 
to you. I'm not talking about the call of God. I'm talking about the special commission that God has designed for you to do. We're all called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. We're all called to be making disciples, baptizing them in the Father, Son. That's, that's the great commission. That's, that's a call that's common to us all. We're all called to worship him. We're all called to gather yourselves together with fellow believers. But actually, a commission is something that's very, very personal and is saying, you go and do this. You go and speak to your neighbor. You send this letter. You do this. And it's that specific commission that can hold us. It's interesting that Gideon, when he finished his commission to deliver the Israelites out of the hand of Midian, he then got into difficulties because he didn't get a fresh commission from God. We read about it in Judges, and you'll see that um, he took all the valuables, all the spoil, and he made an idol which drew the people of Israel away from God, an ephod it was called. He then got a lot of wives, 70-odd children. He had a concubine. Okay. Now, and the first child by that concubine, he named Abimelech, son of a king. Now, Gideon had refused kingship from when the people, you know, in his heyday, his popularity, they wanted to make him king. He said, no, no, you know, God, I can't, can't be your king. But he named his son by the concubine, Abimelech, son of a king. So was there a desire in his heart that God hadn't dealt, dealt with? When Gideon died, the people of Israel turned against his family and ignored them. The nation very rapidly turned back to other idols. Abimelech assassinated all his stepbrothers, all 70 of them. Okay, And for three years, he persuaded the people to make him king. Eventually, uh, a woman chucked a millstone from a tower he was uh, besieging and it, it killed him. I think Gideon lost his way because he didn't have a particular call in his life. The call will change you. The particular commission will change you. Get your call. Get your commission. We want to look at the third part, Gideon's reaction to the commission. He's now realized that someone is special, a specialist talking to him. He said, but Lord, in 15, verse 15, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Was Gideon a good choice on the part of the Lord? I always think about Jesus' choosing of his 12 disciples. Why would you choose some of those guys? You know, why would you choose Judas to look after the, you know, the money? You know, he was stealing from it. He betrayed Jesus. I mean, James and John, you know, sons of thunder wanting to destroy villages with the power of God because they wouldn't respond to Jesus. And it goes on, all petty jealousies. Why would, why would God choose Gideon, you know, the least 
of in his family, the least family in the, in the tribe, the least tribe in the in the tribes of Israel. He was flawed. He was questioning God. He was blaming God. He was afraid. He was aware of his weakness. He was lacking self-confidence. He was needing assurance at every turn. Yet God chose him. If he chose Gideon, can he choose you? Yes, he can. What does God say about weakness? 2 Corinthians 12, 9, 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Your weakness, as Gideon's weakness, was not a barrier to God. Living in and being limited and controlled by that weakness is the barrier to God. Often the biggest battle to fulfilling our commission, I speak from experience in this, is what is between our ears, what we say to ourselves and what we say to others. I'm in danger always of constantly setting the boundaries, of setting the limits of what can God can do through me. Do you have the same problem? You know, I can't speak. I could never be a public speaker. Moses had that problem, and he said it and declared it, and yet God used him to deliver the people out of 400 years of slavery. God wants to take those limits off you today. I'm going to finish here. He wants to take the limits off you. He wants to motivate you by his heart for the poor, for the needy, both physical and spiritual poverty in this nation, that you will actually go and seek him and say, God, what would you have me do as I am? And as you Get his heart for the nation. And you say, Lord, here am I, send me. That as you respond to that, that you'll take the limits off and say, God, yeah, I know my weaknesses, but God, you do too. And you can use me, even with those weaknesses. I want to pray for you this morning. I've not really done justice to this and what's on my heart this morning. I know that. Um, but I, I just pray that you'll hear something of my heart and something of the heart of God this morning that will cause you to say, what I'm seeing in the nation, it's a challenge, but it's an opportunity for me to make a difference. Jesus, I come to you and I ask you to open your heart to me that I can see what you'd have me do. Lord, forgive me for the boundaries that I've set. Forgive me for the limits I've set. Father, help me to take them off. Lord, and to step out with you as you show me what to do to make a difference in this city in this nation.
and in this world. Father, I ask it in Jesus' name. But the responsibility lies with you now. Okay? It lies with you. Just ask God what you can do. And we can make a difference. You know, when we were on that motorbike back in 1998, I didn't see that God could use us to reach out to the poor around the world. And today we're working in seven countries seeing hundreds of thousands coming out of poverty just because we took the limits off and we said, God, we'll do what you ask us to do. It started small, but the impact has been huge and it continues to be, to be huge. Just for your prayers, we've got an invitation to go to Pakistan and speak at the equivalent of what is the Keswick Convention in Pakistan. We're praying about that because logistically it's quite difficult. But the opportunities, what God can do through us, is huge. Find out what your commission is. Find out what your particular responsibility is in God and do it.